Thanks, Ed. Would you guys join me in prayer? Father God, we come here before you this morning, and we have your word open before us, Lord, and we ask that you would, through your word, that you would speak to us as your people this morning. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to, um, to develop us, to grow us, to change us, to convict us, Lord. Um, Lord, I pray that you would use it and that you would write it on our hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. If you have your, your Bibles open, uh, you will be greatly helped this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the row somewhere ahead of you. Um, we are, as a church, continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. And so we're in Ephesians chapter 4, open up to verses 25 through 5-2. Um, when my wife and I and our family go to Belize... We, uh, you know, drive on the roads, and there's so much that's different there in that country, just the way it operates, the way it just works. It's, it's so different. One of the things that I noticed the first time I was there was um, the abundance of speed bumps, okay? Speed bumps. Lots and lots of speed bumps. They call them, in Belize, I don't, it's the first time I heard the term, but they call them sleeping policemen, okay? Sleeping policemen, that are just scattered throughout the highways, throughout the towns. Everywhere you go, there's just speed bumps. There's not a lot of stoplights, not a lot of stop signs, um, but there are a lot of sleeping policemen. Um, and they come in different sizes, right? If you, if you hit one of these sleeping policemen, you will know it. There's a good chance going at a high speed, if you, there's a good chance you will not have a car after hitting one of these sleeping policemen because they're mats and they're really large, right? But what I notice is as we're driving and you just, you'll be driving these beautiful scenic just views and highways throughout town and then the car just comes to a, a quick sudden stop and then thump, thump, right over the bump you go and then on your way. No matter how often we drive on some of these roads, no matter how regularly we are on these highways, the, the, the approaching sleeping policemen always catch me off guard. I rarely see them coming, right? Likewise, if you are familiar with this letter, the book of Ephesians, and as we've been walking through it, chapter 4, verse 17, that we started looking at last, last week, kind of serves, it, it kind of functions to me like a sleeping policeman. No matter how familiar I am with this text, no matter how much I read the book of Ephesians, and I love this letter, it's a joy to be able to open it and preach it with you. After you read through the first three chapters of Ephesians, the, the, the command that we see in verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. It, it functions like a sleeping policeman. I rarely see it coming. Paul has spent a tremendous amount of time in the first couple of chapters reflecting on the grand things that God has done, who God is and what he has done for us, who he has made us to be, big cosmic things. He is extravagant in his enthusiasm and persistent in his praise. Chapters 1 through 12, this lofty language suddenly... Sorry, chapters 1 through 3. This lofty language suddenly changes, abruptly so, in chapter 4. With the negative command, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 
Why? Why, Paul? Why change direction so abruptly? Why not just transfer your energy and your enthusiasm for what God has done to an excitement for what this congregation can do? The, the momentum is up. Shouldn't the command be, go now and do great things for God? Go, go do big things for God. Shouldn't there be a collective call to meaningful action, big action? Why not talk about those things, Paul? But he doesn't. Paul doesn't. And he doesn't for a reason. First of all, because I think... This is the predominant New Testament pattern. We see it over and over and over again. The great doctrinal truths are being applied to the practical, step-by-step, day-by-day realities of life. It reminds us of the way that we think about God, whether you realize it or not. The way you think about who God is and how he relates to us directly impacts every single aspect of your life. Every single aspect, the relationships in your life, the way that you react to life as it comes to you day by day. Another reason why I think that uh, Paul changes direction here and, and gets instantly practical for us is because this is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel does to us and for us. And one of the things I love about this campus specifically is I just look out here this morning as I think about the folks who come here and who worship here. They get really excited about doing big things for God, right? You think about whether it's the school or different, different initiatives um, in this community or even across the globe. We get excited as a people about participating in God's global mandate to make disciples of the nations. We get excited about that big plan, right? This morning, this text comes to us as a wonderful reminder that what our world needs the most is the supernatural, spiritual renovation of human hearts. It starts with your heart. It starts with my heart. Ephesians, we saw yesterday, calls, uh, last week, calls us to the careful and the deliberate attention of our own heart, our own personal walk. Doesn't mean we don't participate in the big things that God calls us to as a people or as a church. But we do not participate while neglecting our own daily walk with Jesus. Our own heart. The, the passage this morning, if we were to just kind of phrase it and just a, a, you know, kind of summarize it with a big idea, it's very similar to the big idea that we saw last week. And it's this, brothers and sisters, you, are a, you have a new identity in Christ. Therefore, live like it. Pay attention to your walk, to how you Walk. It's a big idea. What we've seen him do so far is he's established that we have, because of Christ, you saw this in Ephesians chapter 2, a new identity, right? You were dead in your sins and in your trespasses, but now because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have been made alive. The old is gone, the new has come. You were dead, you are now alive. This is your new identity. 
He's also spent a tremendous amount of time talking about the new community, right? The mystery of the gospel and how it takes broken people from all walks of life, from different ethnic backgrounds, from different places and positions around this globe and brings them together as a new community. We have a new identity and a new community, one new man. We also have seen that there is a new maturity. We looked at this last week. That he sets us on a path and expects and wants for us to grow. And the way that we do that is we are schooled by Jesus himself. We learn Christ. So we have a new identity, we have a new community, and we have a new maturity, a new vision of growth. This week what we'll see is that there is a new ethic. There's a new morality that he calls us to as his people. Specifically in this text, what we want to look at and what I want to show you is that first and foremost, what is the basis for this new morality? And then secondly, what are the basics of this new morality? So, so the bases and the basics of our new ethic as a people. Before we get into the, the, the basics, this, this is a list here of sort of vices and virtues of the Christian faith. And this is how Paul writes. And he writes not just here in Ephesians, but throughout many of his letters, he does the exact same thing. He provides a, a moral vision of what the Christian life looks like. He, he, in his God's grace, he gives us a picture, a standard of what he expects from us, of how the gospel invades our life and affects every step of our life along the way. Before we get into the basics, though, I want to make sure we're clear on the basis, about the foundation of this moral vision that he calls us to as a people. And as we look at these, this list of vices and virtues, again, that we see throughout the New Testament, there is a certain danger that it exists. And it's a danger that is kind of always lurking closely in the weeds. It's a danger of moralism, the danger of moralism. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul issues an indictment on the Galatians church for abandoning the true gospel and entertaining a false gospel. He says in verses 6 and 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of God and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. His words to the church at Galatia provide a warning for them. And it's not just a warning for their church, but it also serves as a warning today for our church as well. There are many who will come and preach a false gospel. Paul's words are, be mindful of that. Do not entertain it. Do not believe a different gospel. In our age, there are many of them that exist. One of the more subversive and seductive false gospels that exist in our day and has throughout the church is that of moralism. It can take different forms, be it political or cultural, However, the basic structure is always the same. The false gospel of moralism is the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. Okay? 
Sadly, this false gospel is one that many Christians and churches, institutions entertain on a regular basis throughout the history of the church. Oftentimes, unknowingly so, they have reduced the gospel to ethical improvement or moral management. What they communicate to the lost is that what God requires from them and demands of them is to get it together, right? Act right. Get your act together. Be good. Do better. Paul is emphatic in his attention to the gospel and the clarity he provides for us. He has already established with crystal-like clarity what the message of the gospel is. So notice his attention, three chapters, to clarifying over and over and over again what the gospel is before he moves into what the gospel does by means of moral vision and moral standard. Paul is so clear that we are justified as a people. We are justified in our faith alone, that we are saved by grace alone, and that we are redeemed in Christ alone. Why moralism promises to produce sinners who are better behaved, the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms us into the adopted sons and daughters of God himself. Only the gospel can do that. Only the true gospel can do that. We are not primarily interested in just better behaved people. We are primarily interested in transformed people, people who have crossed over from death into life. That's what the gospel does. Now, getting back to Ephesians chapter 4 and how this relates. So there's a danger of misunderstanding. When we come across a list like this, don't do this, do this. The temptation is to think that following that list is what justifies us to God. Paul doesn't provide that opportunity in the New Testament. All right? But the question then becomes, do we simply throw the baby out with the bathwater? Right? Okay, well, to avoid that danger, do we just avoid pursuing a moral vision in general? Paul would say, absolutely not. Jesus doesn't afford us that possibility, and neither does Paul in his writings. So the question then becomes, what do we do with the moral teachings that are found in the Bible? The New Testament presents a unified ethical vision that is profoundly relevant for our day today. This New Testament vision of new life includes a moral test along with a doctrinal checklist. We cannot show Jesus to the world if we do not believe what Jesus taught about our most significant ethical choices in life. The gospel then becomes our basis for living out this new ethic for pursuing this moral vision that Jesus has called us to and invited us into. Not just the basis, but it's also the power. The only way that we have a chance of staying on that path, of pursuing that moral vision, is through the power of Jesus and his Holy Spirit that he gives to us. Because our identity itself has been radically transformed by the work of Christ, our walk has no choice then but to look differently. Because we have been placed on a path of life, our life now should reflect that. We walk differently because we are different. That's what the gospel says. 
That's what the gospel tells us to. That's the, the, the basis for this moral, this new moral living that he calls us to. We see it in the text in a couple of different places. First is the very first word, right? Therefore. Again, when we see that word, they act as kind of like, as like if you envision somebody climbing a mountain, they have certain pins along the face. The, the therefore serves as the pins that kind of bring you up. It establishes the argument, shows us clearly how Paul is directing us, the way he is promoting, or pr- the life that he is promoting us to. Therefore, here in this case, points back to everything that he's already established. Primarily, just in the verse, verse, the verse right before it, in verse 24, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, the true righteousness and holiness. Because this is who you are, created in the likeness of God, set on a path of righteousness and holiness, imaging him to the world around you, because this is your new identity, well, therefore... Walk this way. It's when we twist it around that we do great damage to the gospel itself and the message of Jesus. In chapter 2, Paul said it very clearly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are not created by our good works. We are created for and to good works. God prepared those beforehand that we should walk in them. So the danger comes when you take this text, remove it out of its context... Well, I wouldn't even say you can do that with this text because it's in this text very clearly. But some texts throughout the New Testament, you can do that. You can take a list of vices and virtues. You can remove it from its context and you can draw the conclusion that all Jesus wants from us is to look, diff- to, to be better and to do more, to do good, right? And that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. But once again, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is a moral vision that he calls us to. We see it in this text over and over again because he just the, the, the structure, the way that he has provided the structure in the text, you see it, what he does is he says, hey, there's a, there's a negative thing. We saw this last week. There's a, there's a way of living that I want you to put off as new, cre- as new creatures and the, made in the identity of Christ, united through the blood of Christ. There is, there is a certain way of life I want you to put off and there's a certain type of life I want you to put on and to embrace And in our text this morning, he does this as he identifies six different ways for us to look differently. He does it the exact same way. Put this off and put this on. And each one of these, in God's grace, he gives us a reason, a motivation, why this is so important. You see it right away in the first one. Therefore, having put off the falsehood, that's what we don't want to do. We don't want to be people that lie. We want to put off falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth. This is what you put on. Speaking the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Here is the gospel motivation for doing what he's just called us to do. Over and over and over again throughout the text. Get rid of this. Do this because of this. All right. So in his grace he gives us motivation for why we should look differently. Now throughout all of Paul's writings, he, he, he emphasizes this over and over and over again. Galatians chapter 5 verse 25. For if we live by the Spirit, let us also 
walk by the Spirit. Because of who we are, our walk now looks a particular way. The Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God has made us new, therefore let Him be the one who guides our steps. Okay? Colossians 3, 1 through 11. Since then you have been raised with Christ. This is your position now. You are in Christ, with Christ. You have been raised from death to life with Him. Set your hearts, therefore, on the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore. See, he gives us a real clear, this is the gospel message. And it has implications on how you live every step of your life, every single day. How you make ethical decisions in your life. Therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Titus chapter 3 is a great place as well. We see it again. That our basis for the pursuing the moral vision that Paul calls us to, that Jesus lives out and demonstrates, is the gospel itself. We are not primarily concerned with just being better people. Okay? We are changed people. Right? And our life should look like it. It should look like it. There is a moral standard for how we live now as new creatures. And God in his grace doesn't leave us to question and to wonder. Well, God, how do you view, how do you view this moral issue? He tells us in his grace what his standard is. He gives us a picture in Jesus himself and says, walk like him. It's the basis for our new ethic is the gospel. Be mindful not to entertain a false gospel because it is close, closely lurking in the weeds. So what are the basics of this new ethic? There are six, there are really, there's five. Some think that one is kind of tucked into another one and it's different ways. But what I want to do this morning, just as we walk through this, and this is one of the advantages I have to being to preaching as regularly as I do down here, is I can kind of break up the text as I want, right? So um, I think we're primarily going to look at the first two, see how time goes, and we can get into the next. But whatever we don't cover this week, we will we'll look at next week. But I think the first two um, are really helpful. Uh, well, they're all really helpful, but um, just, let's just see how far we get, okay? So what are the basics of this new life? Um, of this ethic that we have been called to, this moral standard that we are asked to live and to meet. Um, Paul's theology, remember Paul's theology isn't simply a doctrinal checklist. It also includes a moral vision. And we stand zero chance of rightly showing Jesus to the world if we refuse to embrace what Jesus taught about the most significant moral choices in life. Okay? Just a couple of observations before we get into it. First is I want you to notice the relational dynamic that exists in each of these sort of moral standards. Each one of them are designed for the promotion and the preservation of the unity of the body. 
And as you look at the, the logic as to why he's called us to put this off and to put this on, he is primarily concerned here with the preservation of the unity of us as a people, which he has just gone to great lengths to establish is how, how God has brought us together, what now is expected from us as one new people. And so as we look at these, we should also be thinking, how do we apply this? How does God use this when we follow it in our obedience to keep us knit together as a people? Just in kind of seeing this, for me, it reminded my, myself of the, the, the tremendous priority that Paul places, that, that God places on the unity of his people, Right? that he's given us standards that when we keep them, promote this unity. God cares tremendously about how we act and function and live as one people. It's a huge priority for him. And if you just go back throughout the Bible, you will see this is what he's doing from Genesis, making a people for himself. So that when then he gives us in his grace kind of rules to follow that help us preserve the unity that he has established. When we follow these, this checklist, when we live out this vision, the result is a wonderful picture, not just of who we are, but primarily of who he is. That's why when he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit in the text, we can say, well, if we grieve the Holy Spirit, it's an offense to God. If, if we talk against each other, if we act against each other, it divides us and it hurts God. It grieves the spirit sin's presence does in us as a people. God cares so much about how we live together, united as a people. So I'll just ask you, do you care very much about how we live together, united as a people. It is a priority for him, and it should be for you as well. So, the other thing that we see there is, like I mentioned before, is the structure. We see the putting off of your old self that he called us to in the previous passage. Put off your old self and put on the new self. In verse 24, he calls us to a lifestyle of righteousness and of holiness that he has created us for. And I want to remind us this morning, the text does as well. This putting off and the putting on, that pursuing holiness is not simply saying no to sin. If your understanding of what it means to be holy is simply boiled down to what you say no to... My guess is life and holiness isn't going to seem very fun, right? I don't know about you, but if all we think about what it means to be a Christian is I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this and I don't do that. I'm sorry, that's going to be a tough bill to sell, all right? Like, I don't know who's signing up for that one, okay? Again, our holiness is not primarily, it is, it does involve, it is necessary as we grow in the image and likeness of Christ, as we learn Christ, that there are things in this life we say no to, right? There is a way of living that may characterize some people that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we simply don't entertain, that we say no to. But holiness is not just what we abstain from. 
Holiness is also what we give ourselves to. All right? The mercy of our Lord Jesus. The love of Jesus. The hospitality of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. The grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. These are the things that we give ourselves to. Folks, walking the path he's placed us on is not just saying no to the world. It's saying yes to Jesus. That's what holiness is. It's, it's holding both of those things in balance. Right? If we have people who just want to receive forgiveness and extend compassion, but who want to wild out all, the, all over here, I'm sorry, Jesus doesn't provide that opportunity, right? Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin, right? There was a tremendous amount of things that Jesus said no to, right? Holiness is holding those two things in harmony. What we abstain from and what he calls us to and I'm telling you, when you understand holiness in this way, it provides for you a hunger, a hunger that is necessary to keep you growing, a longing for Jesus, for more of him and his presence in your life, and a hunger for holiness. First thing I want to point out, verse 25, we'll just look at, Wow, it's already 20 minutes. We'll just look at two, okay? First one is in verse 25, he talks about the way we treat the truth. God is concerned about our treatment of the truth. Verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. This, that belongs to the old self. You are new. Remember the gospel changed you, brought you from death to life? Put that off and speak truthfully. This is what you put on. You put on the truth. To your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. See the, the motivation and the preservation of the unity of the body and display right there in verse 25. This is how God's people relate to the truth. As God's people, we love the truth. Jesus was a man who was characterized by a man who, who, was, who was full of grace and full of truth. And as God's people who follow in his image, we should be as well full of grace and full of truth. We, we should practice it. We should proclaim it. We should be known in our community as people who are honest, who are reliable, and who you can take for their word, who can be trusted. It's not just the avoidance of lies, notice, but it's also the pursuit of truth, constantly pursuing it both intellectually and what we think about and what we read about, but also just practically in how we speak to one another. And again, last week we talked about things that we can flirt with as followers of Jesus. Here it's very clear. Do not flirt with deceit. Don't give room for it. Don't make room for it in your life. And notice how he doesn't, he doesn't categorize falsehood into a variety of different levels or of different types. Right? Don't, these are the types and the levels and the context of, this is, it's not okay to lie here, but it's okay to lie here. He doesn't do that. There's two categories for him, that which is false and that which is true. We should be people who love the truth. Okay? Verses 26 and 27, God deals with anger. 
It says this in verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Here Paul echoes Psalm 4.4. Be angry and do not sin. Reminds us of the concept, or maybe for some of us it even introduces us here to the concept of Christian anger. I think of maybe Christians in our just kind of context here. Um, the concept of Iowa nice comes to mind. I don't know if you guys can relate to that. Uh, maybe some of you aren't from Iowa, and we'll, we'll still pray for you. You know, it's okay. It's not never too late to join. Just come on, Team Iowa. Um, but the, the concept of Iowa nice, I think, can kind of be something that some of us need to pull ourselves out of where this is concerned. Um, this is an aspect, Christian anger, is an aspect of our new identity that some of us struggle to express appropriately. And we should try to express it appropriately. John Stott argues that we deny God, damage ourselves, and encourage the spread of evil when we do not express Christian anger appropriately. I'll say it again. When we do not embrace the concept of Christian anger and understand what it means... We risk denying God, damaging ourselves, and encourage the spread of evil. Right? We, we know that there are two types. It's like there's kind of falsehood and there's truth. There's two ways to kind of treat the truth. There are kind of two types of anger. There's that which is righteous and that which is unrighteous. Obviously, he's, he's trying to bend us towards being righteously angry Christians. Okay? of embracing that reality. In chapter 5, verse 6, if you just look over there, we get kind of a picture of what righteous anger looks like. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. God himself hates sin and is angry towards sin, so much that he calls us, because of our sin, objects of his wrath, of his anger. When Jesus came and walked on the earth, he beautifully reflected this and imaged this to us as well. Jesus shows us what it looks like to be angry and yet not sin. So for us as a people, it would be really helpful to, to understand, first of all, that there is a line between righteous and unrighteous anger. And to try and understand what does righteous anger look like, embrace that so that we don't give the, a foothold to the devil, all right, in our unrighteous anger. Avoid that. Luckily, there's no shortage of things in our world to be righteously angry about as Christians, okay? There's no shortage of opportunities, not just externally in the world around us, but also internally at the presence of sin. And that's really where the line is, sin, the presence of sin. In our world today, there's a great need for Christian anger. We compromise and we tolerate sin in a way that God never does. He hates sin, and so should we. I think of just sin's presence 
in our world today. You know, this past uh, week um, at Faith Academy, we were talking about um, Black History Month, and we realized maybe about halfway through, just with some of the curriculum and some of the things that we were talking about in chapel, there was a lot of questions that people had, that kids had. Um, sometimes, I think, as, as educators or just as adults, we can forget that there are very scary, horrific things that have existed, that exist in our world today and have existed throughout our past, that just talking about them, we do so and we forget that there are little ears that don't even have categories for some of these terrible things. And, and we were talking about slavery, and we had some wonderful questions that kids just wrote down and said, just questions like, why does slavery exist? Why did it exist? Why does racism exist? Like, trying to make sense of this world. And, and one of the, 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 the unfortunate things about raising kids is you have to prepare them for a world that is sinful and that is broken and that is not the way God designed it to be. Slavery is one of those things. So as we think of something like slavery, like it should cause us to be righteously anger, angry over the concept that somebody would think they could own another person. It should invoke in us righteous anger. I think of abortion the exact same way, right? That some people think it's okay to murder children. Well, that concept as Christians who live in this world should cause us to be righteously angry. I think of human trafficking. Some, I think anywhere from 30 to 40 million people right now are in bondage through human trafficking. Slaves today, some 40 million people, that idea should bring to us a level of anger, right? Abuse of any kind to anyone should cause us to be angry, injustice and oppression. These things are the result of a darkened, fallen world. And when God looks at them in their sin, he is angry. We should be too. Some of us need to be more angry. But in your anger, do not sin. Some of us need to remember that phrase is in the Bible as well. Okay? Our anger towards one sin doesn't give us a license to commit another sin. And there's so many platforms, there's so many opportunities to sin as we are angry towards sin. God's word comes to us this morning, says, not with my people, not with my people. Be angry towards sin, but do not sin. Why? Because when you do, you provide foothold for the devil. And shortly thereafter, you know what happens to his people? They become divided, right? There, I think oftentimes, this is one that I hear a lot of times, is this is, you know, never mind, I'm not going to say that, okay. Moving on. Verse 28, there's a commitment to honest work. You know, if you just go through here, the way that God cares about the way. Look at, the, you think about in verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Put that off, but must work. This is what you put on. 
doing something useful with your hands that they may have something to share with those in need. I love this one because it speaks to the reality of a transformation, right? From someone who is a crook and a thief to now somebody who is making a contribution to the people of God. There's a transformation that happens here. God cares, verse 29, about the way that we talk. He cares about the malice that exists in our hearts. It goes on throughout the text. God cares with how we live our lives. He does not just call us to do big things for the gospel. He does, absolutely. But he's also concerned with what's in your heart, what's in my heart. So quickly, just in closing, first thing I want to point out is notice the integration. The, the, this, Paul's writing reflects the full integration of the Christian life, what we are, with Christian theology, what we believe, and Christian ethics, how we behave. Our being, our thinking, and our action must never be separated. It's important to recognize that. God does not provide us to be a people who just think deeply and hold convictions, but then live a different lifestyle. It doesn't make provision for that. Those three things are held in harmony. I also want to point out just the active nature of the life that he's calling us to. The Christian life is one that must be consistently and actively cultivated. John Stott says that holiness is not a condition into which we drift. Holiness is not a condition that we will just eventually drift into. It's not. Sin does that unless we are actively cultivating and consistently practicing and growing to become more and more like Jesus. You don't drift into holiness. If we act as passive spectators in our own sanctification process, you'll have nothing to watch. So finally, just in closing, um, first, for those of you who are here this morning um, who, who are not a follower of Jesus, first and foremost, we are so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're here. It takes a big step to step into a, this kind of an environment and maybe not claim to believe some of these things, but to be willing to learn and listen. So first of all, we want to commend you. Secondly, I want to remind you that the primary message of the gospel is not act right. It's not be your best. The best version of you is what we're all after. It's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is even you at your best isn't good enough. That every single one of us, I don't stand up here this morning as somebody who's figured this out. I stand here this morning as somebody who shares your most fundamental need, the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. I need his blood because I need new life. We all have the same, even the Bible says, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Every one of us is a need of God's grace. So for you here this morning who may, may have not received it, um, the good news of the gospel is that God's always ready to extend it. I just want to suggest to you it would be good to receive it this morning. Establish a basis by which you can 
kind of follow the basics. It starts by receiving his kindness. Secondly, if you are a follower of Jesus, brother and sister here this morning, my, um, so many of you are in community groups, and my suggestion to you would be, this would be a great topic at community group when you guys meet. Um, as we have sort of a list of vices and virtues, um, my recommendation is to look at this. And maybe there's one, two, three, four, five, or six. I don't know how many, all right? But maybe just one that you, you really resonate. You really feel God's spirit prompting you in this morning. This one area I need to grow in. I need to watch the way I talk. I need to watch my anger. I need to consider, are there lies I'm believing and saying, or am I somebody committed to the truth? Um, search my heart for malice and for bitterness. Uh, my recommendation for you as a follower of Jesus this morning, first and foremost, do not leave here feeling the, the guilt, the weight, and the shame of your sin. Okay? Feel the conviction of it. God in his kindness tells us if you confess your sins, he is faithful and he is just. He is always ready to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you, the Bible says, of all unrighteousness. Right? So if you, if you identify there is something I'm struggling to put off this morning, I'm going to pray, and I think before Jeremy comes up, let's just give a moment of just quiet reflection I want you to ask God to search your heart and to reveal that to you and to do so through just quiet prayer. And then it's helpful for me if I confess that to somebody else, okay? And so, um, you know, even this morning at the end, we'll have folks that are down here who would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Um, again, maybe you haven't received uh, the gift of salvation. We would love for that to happen this morning. Um, and maybe you just need the assurance of the pardoning of your sins, um, we would help to show you that as well this morning. Um, and so just as a follower of Jesus, just reflect. Be, be one, blown away by God's kindness towards you, right? That he's ready to forgive you of that sin. And he's ready to call you to something higher. So I'll just give you a quick moment in silence. I want to pray for us. While, before I pray, though, just let me remind you, um, this is not an opportunity for you to search somebody else's heart, Okay. So if you're here with a spouse or there's somebody who's close at hand that you're thinking, hmm, you know, this is between you, your heart, and Jesus. Okay? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are a God who is always ready, who's always present. Lord, I thank you that you have not given us a standard that none of us can meet, Lord, but that you have given us a standard. You've given us a vision and then you've resourced us well by the blood of your Son and the power of your Spirit. Oh, we thank you that you are a kind and a generous God who is faithful and who is just to forgive us our sins. Lord, I pray that you would, just in the quietness of the next few moments, just speak to us each individually and show us how we can look more and more like your son.